Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Black in Science. Before we dive in, there are a few disclaimers I'd like to make. So first things first, these episodes are recorded virtually from the comfort of our own homes, so you may hear some ambient noises like a dog barking in the background or a train going by, and these are all uncontrollable factors of the environments we live in. So please try your best to do what I do and just tune them out. Secondly, these interviews are recorded utilizing modern day technology, which can have the occasional glitch. So you may hear some lag either in my responses or that of the guests I'm talking to, but I promise you they do not take away from the overall story being shared. So without further ado, let's get it started. On today's episode, I spoke with Dr. Alexandra Lacey, who recently created the Black and Toxicology group on Twitter and currently works as a toxicologist for Shell. Throughout the episode, Dr. Lacey recounts her time as an undergrad at a small liberal arts college in Illinois, the research she did for her thesis at Texas A&M, and the regulatory work she does in her current position. You guys, this is such a great episode. Dr. Lacey is so much fun to listen to and has such a great energy about her. I had so much fun chatting with a fellow science lover and black equestrian. So with that being said, let's get into it. So welcome to Black and Science, Dr. Lacey. I'm so glad you were able to join me today. So to start things off, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us your name, where you're currently located, and where you grew up. Sure. So my name is Alexandra Lacey. I currently live in Bryan, Texas, which is where college is next to College Station, which is where Texas A&M is. It's about an hour and a half outside of Houston. Um, I grew up in, well, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and then when I was, I guess, in elementary school, I moved to the suburbs, Southfield, which is kind of like right outside of the city, and I lived, after I moved out of Detroit, I went to college in Illinois, and then Illinois took me to Texas, and so that's where I am now. (laughs) Awesome, okay. So how was growing up right outside of Detroit for you? Um, it was interesting because at the time, so I guess this was in the the 90s, early 2000s, um, the pop, I guess the demographic of Southfield, which is like the suburb I've lived in, um, it was predominantly white. And it was so interesting to see over the course of, you know, five or 10 years, how that demographic totally shifted. Um, and it slowly moved towards predominantly black. And I mean, if, even if you go now, it's you know, it's very close to the city and it's, you know, if you drive around, that's all you see. Um, So it's definitely changed quite a bit since I originally moved there. I feel, I guess, more of a connection to Detroit than I do necessarily to Southfield because I did all of like my extracurricular activities in Detroit. My family lived in Detroit. My grandparents lived in Detroit. You know, my schools were in Detroit with the exception of high school. I pretty much spent the most of my time in the city, so I really feel more tied in with the city than I do with there, with Southfield. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I think a lot of people like to give Detroit a bad rap, um, but the city has gone through so many ups and downs, um, and there's the people there are so resilient. Um, and I just love that city, and I love how vibrant it is. I love the culture. I just, I love it, and I go back home every time I get a chance to. <laughs> I think you can claim it. It's fine with me. (laughs) (laughs) 
So what got you started in the science? Were you always interested or was there a specific person or experience that kind of piqued your curiosity? Um, so ironically, I kind of, my introduction into science was really in engineering. Um, so Detroit has this program called, well, it used to be called Detroit Area Pre-College Engineering, which is called, the acronym is DAPSEP. And so it was for elementary, middle and high school, I think. And you would go, you know, for several weeks, several weeks out of the year to one of the schools in Detroit, and they would have you do extracurricular programs, they would have you do projects like putting together robots or, you know, coming out with a solution to filter water through sand or, you know, making just kind of really cool projects. And so I did that when I was in elementary school. When I was in middle school, I did a summer engineering program at University of Michigan. Um, and that was similar thing, but it was away. So, you know, I would stay on the college campus for, I think it was a month I stayed there and that was really great. So at the time I was, you know, gung-ho engineering. I was really enjoying it. I liked math, I liked STEM. So I said, well, you know, this, this is pretty cool. I think this might be for me. And then I kind of got, I'm not, I guess it was maybe around high school, I kind of pivoted a bit. I really loved animals. And so I said, well, maybe I'll look at being a veterinarian. So which is totally, total deviation from engineering. <laughs> so um, to that end, I participated in um, Michigan State's Vet Word Bound program, which is again, just like a summer enrichment program. So I stayed there, um, I think that was six or eight weeks, if I recall correctly. And I love that program. Like you got so much hands-on experience. They did courses that prep you for the, for the classes that you would take in vet school. Um, they taught you animal anatomy. We got to do dissections. I mean, it was a really great program and I highly recommend it to anybody who's looking at veterinary school. So that kind of was my experience, I guess, before college with science. <laughs> what kind of vet did you want to be? Did you want to be like small animals, large animals, mixed practice? I wanted to do small animals. I wanted dogs, cats. I don't know about like hamsters and anything smaller than that, but dogs and cats, that was my interest. <laughs> yes, I feel that. So what kind of extracurriculars did you do in high school besides the science related stuff? Um, so I was always into track. So I guess in middle school, I started running track. So I ran the 200, the 800, which I totally hated. Um, and then I did the relays too. So it was, I did track in middle school and then I also did track in high school. I also did basketball in middle school. Now I'm thinking about it. I try to block that out. I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did track all the way up into high school and our track team was pretty good. I went to a high school called Mercy. It was in Farmington Hills, which is kind of out, again, outside of Detroit in one of the suburbs. Um, and then during the off season of track, I was actually on the bowling team from I think my sophomore year to my senior year. And we ended up going to like states and getting like second place. And we were we were pretty good. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. Bowling team. That's I think that's the first I've heard of that. Yeah. It was different. It is definitely different. <laughs> Which I think one? I get a lot of I get a lot of looks every time I say, Oh, I was I was on the bowling team and I was varsity and you know, people are really <laughs> impressed. <laughs> Which one did you like better, track or bowling? Um, I think I was I, I was better at bowling. I was really good. 
Um, I've since lost all the skill, but at the time, <laughs> I was very good. <laughs> um, so I think I liked that because I was better at it, but I think I enjoyed track more for like the social aspect because the bowling team was small. Was, you know, I was very close with the girls on the team because I was, I was at all girls school at the time. And so I was really close with the girls on the team, but my track friends were a different set of friends. And the track team is huge, you know, because there's so many events, there's field events. Um, so I think there was maybe like 35 of us or 40 of us on the team. So I had so many different friends. So it was just a different demographic. So I, I think I liked them for different reasons. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you end up finishing high school? So I finished high school in 2009. And then I, after I finished high school, I went to Lake Forest College, which is outside of Illinois. It's like, I don't know if you know where Northwestern is, which is like in Evanston outside of Chicago. So we're mm -hmm. like maybe another 20 minutes north of Evanston. Mm -hmm. um, it's a small like liberal arts school. And um, I did that for four years, got my bachelor's um, in science. I'm, I'm sorry, in biology. And I got a minor in chemistry. Mm -hmm. And then after that, that's what brought me to Texas A&M. So... <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so to rewind a little bit, did you, when you were applying to schools, were you looking to stay like near Detroit or were you looking to venture out? Um, I was pretty open to going wherever. Um, my mom, from an early age, like education was really important to my family. Um, both of my grandmothers were educators in their local school systems. My grandmother was an educator in Detroit. And so education was you know, of the utmost importance, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and so my mom and her father both went to University of Michigan. So there was a little bit of, okay, maize and blue, let's just go, we'll go Wolverines, you know? <laughs> um, and I applied there, but at the time, I was really kind of leaning towards vet school. So ironically, Michigan State has a really great vet school, not U of M. So that was a little bit of, you know, tension but <laughs> so I applied to Michigan well Michigan State and I also applied to several other vet schools like in the Midwest and like I think I applied to North Carolina State um, Texas A&M and several others I got into four schools but they weren't all willing to give financial aid and different varying amounts of money so mm -hmm. I come from a very like lower middle class family. So, I mean, we're comfortable, but by no means just able to write a check for college, you know? So the funding was definitely a, a huge consideration in my decision. And, you know, as long as I like the school and they're willing to offer me money, there's no reason for me to say no. So uh, we actually found, so my mom found Lake Forest College via a friend of ours um, who was actually as a veterinarian. I did like some internships and stuff with her. She went to my church. And um, she recommended that we look at this book called Colleges That Change Lives. And so there, it's like a list that they, they, it's a book and they publish it every year. And it's a list of like small colleges that kind of offer a different experience than you would get at like a larger institution. And so they typically give more money. Sometimes they, not always, but sometimes they can be better for minority students or people who are, you know, kind of conflicted on which school to go to and they want more of like a catered to small environment school. And so while Lake Forest College was not on that list, 
it was kind of, it kind of fit the similar characteristics. So we kind of did some research online based on that book and several of the other, you know, people who wrote about it said, hey, if we were to include some other schools on this list, here's what it would be. And Lake Forest was one of those schools. And so it's only at the time there was maybe 1700 people that went to the school and maybe like 200 of them are master's students. So the undergrad population was really small. I knew pretty much everyone at school, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a really great environment. I, I love Lake Forest and I, I look back on it. Everybody looks back on college fondly, but I look back on it with, it just holds a very special place in my heart because it allowed me, I think the small college environment really allowed me to thrive and help me figure out exactly what I want to do and really kind of guide me in the right direction and really taught me how to, you know, think critically, write critically, and just so many different skills that I think you learn in college, but I think I have a deeper understanding um, than what I would have gotten at a larger institution. So, yeah, I can vouch for that. (laughs) (laughs) So did you participate in any extracurriculars while you were at Lake Forest? Um, I was on the equestrian team. Um, later, I think it was my junior and my senior year. It didn't start until that, you know, kind of the second half of college. I didn't do anything the first two years. I was really just trying to figure everything out in school. And, you know, I was a little homesick in the first part, like going back and forth to home. And so I, I didn't really do much the first two years. The second year, I actually studied abroad in New Zealand. So they had a program where um, we could go to the University of Auckland, which is in the North Island of New Zealand. Um, And that was a really, really great experience. And it was totally covered by the tuition I was currently paying, which was such a benefit. And so that's another, you know, great thing about those smaller liberal arts schools. They allow you different opportunities that you wouldn't necessarily get and a smaller applicant pool who they're choosing from. And so being able to do that and not really come out of pocket for anything aside from extra things I wanted to do. Um, that was a really great experience. And then when I got back from New Zealand, that's when they started the equestrian team. And I said, well, we'll have some, some extra time. So I decided to do that. And we did mostly English writing. I grew up kind of doing Western writing, but I, I really enjoyed English. It was, it was different. <laughs> that's yes. As someone else who rides horses, I can, say the same thing I grew up riding western too and yeah it's it's definitely the two are very different disciplines and you kind of have to look at them as that they are they are I know they both hold a special place in my heart but I think I'll always be like a western style girl same though same (laughs) so did you do any undergraduate research too while you were there so I guess it was my junior year they open up research opportunities for undergraduates in the biology department. And so, you know, there's a list of different places where you can either do research, externships, or whatever you want to do. And so the first one I did was an externship at Blue Pearl Veterinary Partners, which is like a chain veterinary practice. So you can find them in several different states, mostly up north. I haven't seen any down here in Texas. But um, I did an externship there, really enjoyed it. I wasn't able to do a lot of hands-on stuff just because of the restrictions that I wasn't like a trained veterinary student or anything like that. So I got some experience there. 
really enjoyed it. But I think that was the turning point for me in figuring out what I wanted to do and how it's led me to what I do now, because I found that the veterinary doctors were not the ones that were doing a lot of the one-on-one patient care with the animals, which is really what I was going into it for. And I said, I don't think I want to be, you know, anything else but this. I mean, that's kind of the only option if I were to go into this field, at least for me. And so I decided, well, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I should kind of look into some other things. And so I went back to my academic advisor at Lake Forest and said, hey, I didn't really like this. Are there other options for me to do a potential internship just to get more experience since you're offering a free program? I want to take advantage of it as long as I can. And so my senior year, they offered me an opportunity to do research in a neurobiology lab, which was at Rosalind Franklin Medical School, which is up near Lake Forest. It was maybe like 10 or 15 minutes away. Um, so they do research and they have a medical, you know, medical school attached to it as well. And so I had a friend of mine who's actually in the lab already. And so they said, hey, well, you know her and, you know, we already have a Lake Forest student in there. You can feel free to go in there and help her with her project. So she um, was doing some pretty interesting research on Alzheimer's. Um, and don't quote me on exactly what it was. It was too difficult <laughs> to remember. And it was only one semester. <laughs> but um, I really enjoyed just the process of having a question and delving through different paths to figure out, you know, an an answer, not necessarily the answer, but, you know, just kind of figuring out what the issue was, what's the resolution, is there a fix for it? So I really liked that challenge. And even though I only kind of saw one kind of aspect of her project, it was really interesting to me. And so I decided, well, maybe um, research is the way for me to go. At the same time, I'm applying for veterinary schools, but they're all coming back and saying, hey, you don't have enough of the class requirements, which I find is really similar amongst my friends who have applied for vet school and my friends who have applied for med school. You get out of undergrad and then you usually have to take more courses to to end up getting into med school. I know some people who have, you know, really been rigorous in undergrad and gone straight into it, but at least in my circle, that has not been common. And there's typically extra classes that you have to take, which at that point you're paying out of pocket for. There isn't a scholarship that covers after you get your degree, you know? And so I was having to take more classes. So I kind of said, well, maybe let's pivot here. I'm kind of pulling away from veterinary medicine on top of the fact that I'm not really even qualified at this point. I'd have to do additional requirements. And I don't think I see that as a passion for me to do all that for. So that's what kind of brought me, I guess, into the research track. That's interesting because you said you were a bio major, right? In undergrad. So you would think that, you know, a lot of the majority, if not all the courses you were taking would be applicable to like vet school and med school. Yeah, it would have required. So in retrospect, it would have required me to take two or three more classes every semester, which would have just, it, it's possible, but it would have been just back to back to back with notes. I had a work study, so I still had to make time for that. And then still like get homework done at the end of the day and study. And it just, I think I did it one semester to try to fit extra classes in. And it was so overwhelming. I ended up dropping one just because I it was too stressful. And I said, it's not worth it to be this stressed. <laughs> not at all. So. so when did you end up finishing undergrad? 
So I finished undergrad in 2013, May of 2013. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing the research in the neurobiology lab at Rosalind Franklin, I was applying to, to grad school. So I said, well, if I like research, then, you know, I kind of need to go into the grad school, right? Whether or not it's master's or PhD. At that point, I had no clue which I wanted to do. To be honest, I really didn't even have a preference. <laughs> um, just knowing that if I wanted to do research, I need to go to grad school. That was like step number one. And so um, I'm applying to a bunch of different schools. Some are, you know, accepting me saying, hey, you can come, but we don't have any funding. Some said, hey, we have a little bit of funding, but, you'll, you know, with stipulations, like you'll have to come and work part time and we'll offer you this amount of money. And then you get into the whole aspect of finding a PI to do research. So, you know, hey, we don't have a PI for you, so you would have to find the PI. So there's so many things to like juggle when you're, you know, looking at grad school. And I feel like a lot of schools have different processes in terms of like how they match you with funding, how they match you with the PI. And some of it, they are really helpful and do a lot of the, the beforehand legwork on. And some of them are like, hey, you can come, but figure everything else out on your own. <laughs> so um, I ended up applying to Texas A&M at the School of Public Health, but then they ended up coming to me with a different program saying that, hey, we don't have any, any openings here in our program, but we do have openings in the School of Toxicology, which ironically was under the Veterinary School of Medicine. <laughs> So um, I came out, I think my last semester of undergrad to visit, they, you know, invited me out for a recruitment weekend and, you know, they kind of gave me the rundown of the program. They toured me around different labs. We kind of rotated through and had interviews with different PIs to, you know, just learn about their research and kind of pitch ourselves a bit um, to see if it was a right fit for us to start in the fall. And so I ended up finding a PI, his name is Dr. Steve Safe. So I met with him. He does cancer research. And I was it was interesting to me because my father passed away from cancer when I was seven. And so that definitely struck a chord with me and saying, hey, you know, I think this would be something really interesting for me to do. Um, and I have a passion for it. And so I talked with him. We hit it off really well. But he said, I don't have any money. So you'd have to bring your own money. And if you get your own money, then I'll be happy to take you. If not, I, I just can't. I'm sorry. There's nothing more I could do. So I came back home. And really, if you at that point in the toxicology program, you couldn't come in and do rotations through different PIs. It was kind of like you had to come in under someone or have your own funding or whatever the case was. So really, if I didn't make a PI stick, there was no way for me to come. (laughs) So I think every like two or three weeks, I bugged and pestered Dr. Save. I said, hey, has anything changed with your funding? Do you have any more grants? Anything else going on in the lab? You know, I'm still really interested. And so I kept the same response. I don't have anything. I don't have anything. In the meantime, time on the other end my mom knew a friend who had a friend which I think is the power of connections in this Mm -hmm. life she had a friend of a friend who worked at Texas A&M in the office of graduate studies her name is Dr. Butler Perry she works here at Texas A&M and she said hey there's this program called LSAMP which is the Lewis Stokes Alliance for Minority Participation 
and they do undergraduate work and it's it's a program geared at under minority undergraduate students and they bring them in the first i think two years of their undergraduate study to kind of teach them you know skills that they'll need in college like essay writing and editing and applying for grants and stuff like that so they said hey we have a graduate assistantship that would you know pay you a stipend and it would pay for your admission into a m so i'm like okay great i'll take it like this is this is great let's do it <laughs> so i told her you know i'd be totally happy to do that and at the time she was running the program so she said we have an open position so we'll go ahead and bring you in so that was great news so then i circled back to dr safe and said hey i have my money so can i come now <laughs> so he was more than happy to take me and then that's how i kind of started at a m that's awesome. That's interesting that I didn't know that some programs are require you to do most of the legwork. That's very interesting because you would think like if you're offering this degree or this program or, you know, that you would provide the assistance for that, the funding for that. So that's mm -hmm. interesting to say the least. I will say that, so since then, I've could, I mean, since I graduated, I've stayed pretty well connected with the toxicology program as one of just their alumni students. And I, on top of the fact that I still live here. So sometimes they call me back to like lecture students since I guess I'm like young and I'm close to their age still. <laughs> and they've made a lot of changes to that program. And so now they have a whole intake where they, you know, still have their recruitment weekend, but they do rotations. Like when a student is admitted, they go through rotations. And if you find somebody, you can stay with them. If not, you know, you keep cycling through and they cover that first year financially so that you don't have to worry about you know, money or cost or anything. And then you have to find someone within that first year so that you can continue on their funding for your next, you know, three, four or five years or whatever the case is. So it's definitely changed to a better format. I think I just kind of caught them at a bad time when they were trying to make those changes. <laughs> <laughs> you were in that wave. <laughs> I, I was. <laughs> okay, so you started your program in 2013? Mm -hmm. in the fall of 2013. Mm -hmm. And how was that overall experience for you? Um, I really loved my time at Texas A&M. And this is even coming from someone who I loved my small liberal arts college experience. I was very nervous about coming into A&M. I know that the graduate experience is very different from the undergraduate experience just because of, you know, the activities they plan and just the whole vibe and, you know, just undergrad versus graduate school. It's just a little bit different. Um, so I was very nervous. But coming into the LSAMP program, they were kind of like my family. And there was an office of, there was only like four of us. And I saw them every day and, you know, it kind of felt a little like homey, if that makes sense. So that was nice. So I had a little bit of that to anchor me. Um, on top of the research and like my PI doctor safe, like I have nothing but absolutely positive things to say about him. He's amazing. He's been doing toxicology research for a long, long, long time. And so he has such a wealth of information. He was always so supportive, always very upfront and honest and very direct and to the point. Like, and even from the beginning, he was like, I don't like people hanging around for five, six, seven years. You come in, you do your research, you get your degree, you go, I'm not here to hold you up. 
go ahead and move forward, which I loved. Mm -hmm. And at the time, in retrospect, I understand like how valuable that was because I hear other people's experiences, even some of my friends who are, you know, kind of currently at AM, and it is not that at all. Um, so I was really blessed and really grateful to have found the PI that I found and had such like a wonderful experience with him. My research experience was great. I really like my time at AM. I think with it being grad school, I don't think I interfaced a ton with the huge university of AM. It was more so just kind of like my college that I interfaced with and the college of at med. But I really enjoyed that experience as well. And everybody was was really great. So I have really nothing negative to say. <laughs> That's a good thing. We like to hear that. I know, I know, I know. Especially and I'm, still, about, I'm really grateful that, that that's what it is because I know it doesn't have to be that way. Right, especially with grad school because you never know what you're walking into with that. Yeah, it's a total mixed bag, total mixed bag. And I've heard some horror stories, so. So you went for a PhD, correct? I did. So at the time, they were not offering a master's option. So I just went ahead and did the PhD. And I said, well, if I'm here and you all are covering, you know, the research and I might as well say it's PhD. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. So would you mind going into a little bit more detail about your dissertation work? So my lab mainly works on compounds that are naturally occurring in cruciferous vegetables, which are like your more of the bitter vegetables that your that kids don't typically like, you know, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, that sort of thing. <laughs> and so our focus was on diendomethane which is a metabolite of indole-3-carbonyl, which is the compound that's found in, you know, all these cruciferous vegetables. And so what we did in our lab is my PI, Dr. Saif, he's a chemist by training. So he did a lot of the work, you know, right there in the lab. So he synthesized diendomethane with different chemical functional groups. So like a methyl group or hydroxyl group or carboxymethyl group. And he synthesized those in our lab. And we found that these synthesized diendomethane compounds have anti-cancer properties. And so we tested them in cell lines as well as in animal models on um, colon cancer, pancreatic, breast cancer, and rhabdomyosarcoma, which is a childhood cancer, which is like the cell line I typically worked with. And so what we found across the board in these cancers is that they overexpress a nuclear receptor protein called NR4A1. And this protein, this nuclear receptor is found in all cells, but it's at a higher level in these cancer cells. And so in a normal cell, NR4A1 regulates gene transcription so it controls a lot of things like development, homeostasis, um, metabolism, cell cycle regulation. And so what we found was that um, diendomethane and these synthesized diendomethane compounds that we produced in the lab is a ligand for NR4A1. So what it would do in the cancer cell is bind to NR4A1 and turn on or off genes to be transcribed. And so what we found is that in these cancer cell lines and in our animal models that treating the cells with diendomethane can um, modulate inflammation, apoptosis, cancer metastasis, cell cycle regulation. So pretty much modulating them in a way that inhibits cancer growth. Um, so overall, the expression of NR4A1 has been shown to be like a negative prognostic factor in not just the cancer that we study in our lab, but in other cancer cell lines as well. 
So it was really interesting to work on a project that has such like real close real world ties. You know, it's something that when I tell people about my research, they say, oh, so I can, I should keep eating my broccoli, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That's so cool too. Yes, it's cool. They So they did, we did work with dienomethane. We did work with um, turmeric. We did work with metformin, which is actually a diabetes medication. And we found some use for it in cancer treatment as well. So it's, it's a pretty cool lab. They do, they do some interesting research. Hmm. All I gotta say is God bless chemists synthesizing <laughs> those compounds. I am definitely not a chemist. Like I, I dabble, but I am not by no means a chemist. I'm definitely a toxicologist. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, that's all you, man. It's all you. <laughs> Absolutely. So when did you end up finishing your PhD? Well, I finished my PhD um, in the summer of 17. So it took me like four years and then the summer session. I think that summer session was, I mean, I was all writing and, you know, defending at that point. So I've definitely needed that summer session. I could have pushed it out to the fall, but I was just ready to go and I kind of had a job lined up in that summer and my PI was like, I don't need you here. You can go. <laughs> Bench space or someone else. <laughs> he said, so, it's time. It's time. Yeah. He said, I'm going to go. I, you've, got, you've got your chapters. you got your papers. Let's just go ahead and go. <laughs> so you didn't end up doing a postdoc after you finished? I did not. So when I was going through my program, I was open to doing a postdoc. I didn't really, I think I didn't have, I didn't start looking at job opportunities till that last year. Cause at the time it's really like tunnel vision. You know, you're working on your PhD, you're doing your research, like I'm writing, I don't have time to think about anything else. And everyone's like, you know, oh, you need to start looking at jobs. You need to start applying. And I'm like, I can't even focus. Like with my, if something's going wrong with my, like my animals or something's going wrong with my cell lines and they're dying or whatever the case is, I just couldn't even think about any of that. So the last year I finally buckled down and said, okay, well, I guess I need to find a job. <laughs> and my PI, he was very gracious. He would have taken me on as a postdoc if, if it came to that and I had no other opportunities. But I guess the maybe about halfway into my PhD program, they kind of started making changes within the toxicology program. And so they're the new kind of chair of the program came in and he has a lot of regulatory toxicology experience. So at the time I was really doing, you know, like cancer mechanism and cancer biology, chemistry kind of courses. And then when he came in midway, he kind of switched the program, not switched the program around, but he gave the students more options. So there was an option that you could kind of go a regulatory toxicology track, which is like you know, working for EPA or something like that um, versus going a mechanistic toxicology track, which not always, but typically you do that and then you probably will go into research at that point. And so I was, I kind of took some of the introductory classes. My cohort, we were kind of like the guinea pigs. So you know, they brought these new courses in, didn't totally implement the program, but they were like, okay, well, you all have these new options. Do you want to take these courses? Um, so I took several of them, really kind of enjoyed the regulatory toxicology so that while I was in the toxicology program, I was really doing cancer biology, which didn't really, you know, not, it, it's not classic toxicology. And so, um, finding that I really, you know, struck a chord with regulatory tox, I kind of started taking more classes in that direction and kind of pivoting a bit. Um, 
And at the same time, the chair of the department, his name is Ivan Rusin, he had was putting together a list of contacts that the department had in either academia or regulatory or industry or whatever the case is. And um, he had this list and he said, you should start looking at this list and reaching out to people. I'm not sure what you're interested in, but let's start, you know, lining you up because obviously looking out for me, because he was a great program chair, but he also wants his students to do well. So he said, hey, we need to find you a job because you you know, you're one of our guinea pig students. So, you know, this this all needs to look good. So um, I ended up looking on the list. I reached out to several companies. On the industry list, I reached out to ExxonMobil and Shell and ended up hearing back from Shell. I think I started applying. So I, I finished in August of 17. So I started applying in the fall of 16. And then in January or February, I started hearing back from Shell. And they said, hey, we have a toxicologist opening because in retrospect, someone had just retired, um, which I didn't know on that end. And so they were looking to for someone to fill that position in Houston. And so um, I applied, you know, waited like two months, two, three months, didn't hear anything back. I said, well, shoot, I guess I don't have the job. I'll keep I'll, I'll keep looking. But, you know, it was a really great prospect because it was in Houston. And at the time, um, my husband had well, he was now my husband, but he had started his business here in Bryan College Station. And I wasn't really wanting to move too farther than Houston. And so they ended up um, reaching back out to me, I think in maybe like April or May, and said, hey, you know, we'd like to bring you in for the interviews. And so we started that process, which doing that and trying to finish writing at the same time and getting ready to defend, it was just and I, I was pregnant at the time too. So it was just like the most stressful time in my life. <laughs> so I'm not sure how I got it all done, but it got done. And I, you know, graduated, I started my job and everything went smoothly. <laughs> Thank God, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, highly do not recommend. Highly, highly don't recommend. <laughs> so are you still in that position now? Yep, so I'm still a toxicologist with Shell. So I've been there, I guess four years now since 17. Mm-hmm. She doesn't feel that long. It's gone by so fast. Um, but I really love what I do. So it's definitely more in the regulatory toxicology field. Um, I still use a little bit of the mechanistic toxicology principles I learned in my day-to-day job, whether or not to, it's looking at like a specific chemical that um, there's some data on it and having to like do a deep dive into like the tox data and the animal studies. So I kind of use some of those principles as well as the regulatory toxicology because we do a lot of advocacy um, with different groups. So whether or not it's on the federal level or, you know, the state level, um, when they, you know, look at a chemical, do a risk assessment of it to say whether or not, you know, they're going to ban it, whether or not they're going to let you use it in their state or whether or not they're going to set an l- acceptable level at which you can use this or you can, you know, have this out in the environment without it causing any injury or harm to people. And so um, that's kind of where the regulatory talks comes in and interfacing with them. And I typically have at least once per quarter a meeting with a regulatory body just to kind of talk through the data and, you know, talk through the science and, it's not necessarily a right or wrong thing, but just a discussion of the current available science and what it usually comes down to is different interpretations. So for even one chemical, 
you'll have different states that each have their own process for how they came to a limit value for, oh, this is the amount that we're going to deem acceptable in the soil or the air and the water or whatever the case is. And so that's usually where the rubber meets the road. Um, and we're going back and forth on the interpretation of the data, which is used to derive whatever value they're proposing or trying to publish. Interesting. Okay. Cause yeah, when I think shell, I think like gasoline. So I didn't realize it was, it's bigger than that. Yeah, it really is. So that's what people kind of think. I mean, obviously you think gasoline. I, I thought gasoline too, when I first started. Um, but ironically, I don't do a ton with, <laughs> with fuels. Uh, a lot of what I do is chemicals. And so through the refinery process, fuel is obviously the major one, but chemicals are a huge part of the process. It's just other byproducts of the refining process as well. So um, I do a lot of chemical support. I do a lot of emergency response. So I'm like the contact if there's a spill at one of our refineries or with one of our chemicals, I'm like my contact information is there. So if something is totally catastrophic, went wrong, like I'm one of the people that they will call to say, hey, what do we do? How do we make sure, you know, we're evacuating the right people? How, how wide of a radius should we be evacuating? Should we be worried about this chemical getting into the water? Should we be worried about people inhaling it? Do we need to put on PPE? Do we need to put on gloves, respirators, you know, all of that. So it's, it's a pretty interesting job. I, it's something different almost every day. And I think that's what I like about it. That's so cool. You're like the 911 call. call <laughs> <laughs> well, I have not gotten any, I'm not gratefully, knock on wood, have not gotten any calls. It's typically emails, like relatively emergent but nothing that like we need to get Alex on the phone right now <laughs> thank god <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was gonna ask that too I was like has it been anything big anything major anything really concerning <laughs> no there hasn't been anything major um shell I will say and I I can't compare this to other oil and gas companies because I, I this is the only one I have experience with but they're really big on safety and HSSE um, and we have, there's a whole program called Goal Zero, um, which is no harm to any operators or any contractors and no spills. So we keep track and keep a record of that publicly on the website. Um, and they're really, they have a real emphasis on safety, at least in the parts that I've described. I can't speak for, you know, everybody's experience with Shell, but in my experience, it's been nothing but, you know, safe practices and making sure everybody gets home at the end of the day safely. Yes, that's what we like to hear. Absolutely. <laughs> Number one priority. <laughs> <laughs> so as a Black woman in toxicology, what has your experience been like so far? Um, it's been interesting, to say the least. Going into Texas a and it's a PWI, so there's not many people that look like me. Um, when I started my program, there weren't any other... There were... A, a good amount of other women in my program, whether or not it was on the faculty level or in the student body, um, but there weren't any other Black people, men or women. And that remained true until my third year. <clears throat> Someone else got brought into our program, another Black lady, and her name is Melanie Warren. She actually works at Chevron now. She's a good friend of mine. But she was the only one that was brought in while I was there. And I've kind of kept up with the program um, because I'm so close and I've seen maybe one or two others come through there. So that's something that um, I would really like to see them improve on. 
Um, I know about the disparities in, you know, postgraduate studies and in research, just with there just being a lack of representation. And I definitely find that it's even more true in toxicology. Outside of my Texas A&M experience, even when I was going to different conferences, so like there's a big Society of Toxicology conference that's held every year. And I went every year that I was at A&M and I never, I mean, maybe a handful, like no more than what I could count on one, if not two hands max of not Africans, but African-Americans. And so, cause there was a, there are different like specialty groups that are in, are part of this Society of Toxicology Conference. And so the, it's like, I think an Asian American group and um, African descent group, uh, you know, Indian de- descent group. So there are some of those, but um, I just never felt like there was a strong presence of us. Um, there. And so that's something I definitely want to be engaged with them to move forward on and see like, how do we get more people in the field of toxicology? And is it that they're just not at these conferences? And am I not seeing them? Or do they just not exist? And I have a hard time believing they don't exist. I think that they're out there. So that's one of the things that since I've settled into my role at Shell is something I really want to you know, kind of get involved with. And um, that's kind of why, what brought me to academic Twitter in the first place, which I think is how we met. <laughs> and so really just trying to put the word out there, reach more people, network with other people, see if like my experience is shared through other people who have had similar experiences and just trying to like network with people because it's so lonely, you know, when you're kind of feeling like you're the only one in a field. Um, and just wanting more people to share your experience with. So, oh, everything you said is just so familiar because that's <laughs> that's how I felt too. I felt so alone because where I was, even you know, I was when I was working at Penn, the University of Pennsylvania, there was just still a lack of representation there. And it's just yeah, I had the same questions. I'm like, is it just me? Am I just in the wrong place, or is it really just this? this much lack of diversity in terms of black and African-American representation. And then, like you said, I found Twitter and I was like, oh my God, look at all these other brown faces that I'm seeing right now. Like, yes, we are here. We are prevalent. It's just the numbers, of course, are not where we like, but we are, we still exist. So yes, I know exactly what you mean by that. And that's even something I've been struggling just even on like black Twitter, like finding other people who there are a lot of people in science. And I'm so happy to like be in the black in science, black and X network. Shout out to them to just see more brown people in science, which I love. But I still have not gotten a very like huge outpouring of people, you know, in toxicology, which that's, you know, what I'm I love being a part of the other networks, but I really want to find more people in the tox field. So that's something I'm really passionate about. And that's why I kind of started the Black in Toxico, like Twitter handle to try to, you know, just get more information about like there are Black people in toxicology and I'm one of them. Let's connect. Let's find other people, you know, let's build each other up. So, oh, yeah, I think I've definitely seen that, too, on Twitter. I think a lot of the people, even in the first season of the podcast, I had a lot of a lot of black and cancer people, a lot of black and immunology people, but like so looking at some of these other areas, I just, the numbers seemed a lot smaller. Like it was very disproportionate. So I'm like, come on guys, we need more of that representation, which again is one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast. I'm like, you were one of the very few, if not only black and toxico people I found on Twitter. And I was like, we need to get these numbers up guys. We need to. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. 
So what are three pieces of advice you'd give to someone who's looking to pursue a similar path as you? Um, I would say don't hold too tightly onto like your plans. Um, it's great to have a plan, but kind of let your path take where it's going to take you. Um, don't be afraid to kind of pivot or change plans or change your research or change your PI or change your career. Um, and, you know, don't hold too tightly onto how you kind of always thought something was going to turn out or how it was supposed to look in your head and be open to change. Um, then I would say follow your passion um, because you never know. As long as you're following your passion, I feel like you never know where it's going to take you. And it's always going to lead you to a place where you're happy because that I feel like needs to be the central motivation behind what you do. So you can have like just general happiness in life. And then the third, which <clears throat> I think I've kind of, it's kind of been demonstrated for sure um, in the middle of this pandemic is guarding your mental health. It's something that was important to me in um, undergrad and then even more so in grad school. Um, and even now during this pandemic, just protecting your mental health because it is central to almost everything that you do. And if you're not right, then you can't go into the world and do everything, all the great things you're supposed to do. So I'm all about like protecting it at all costs and whatever, whatever boundaries you need to set, whatever, you know, things you need to put into your head to make sure that's always, you know, at a hundred percent, which is not always going to be, but doing whatever you can to make sure it's protected is so important. That's social, that's family, that's workplace, that's everywhere, I think, so. Oh, yes, that was such good advice, yeah. <laughs> I especially relate to the um, be flexible with your plans because like you, when I was young and then I entered undergrad, I was like, oh, I wanna be a vet because you know I love horses and that's what I wanna do. And then, you know, I really looked into it and I'm like, no, I actually don't think this is for me. And then I, I had a hard time accepting that because that was my plan. That was it. Like that was, I was so goal oriented. And when I didn't have that goal anymore, I really struggled with like, what's next? Like what else is there for me? So yes, being open to what other experiences come your way is something I think is very important. So I definitely agree with you on that one. So that was actually all the questions I had for you today. If you're willing, would you mind sharing either your social media information or your email or both for anyone who might want to reach out with questions? Sure. So my email is blackintoxicology at gmail.com. And my Twitter, my two Twitter handles are blackintoxico. And my personal one is blacktoxdoc, D-O-C. Beautiful. Is there anything else you would like to add? No, I think that's it. Thanks so much for having me, Jasmine. I appreciate it. Of course. This is such a good conversation. I'm so excited for people to hear about it. And to know that going into toxicology is a great option, you know? And there you have it, guys. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Black in Science. I just want to take the time once again to thank Dr. Lacey for participating as a guest on the show. Make sure you all check out and follow the Black and Toxicology group on Twitter, and don't be afraid to reach out to Dr. Lacey if you're a fellow tox lover. If you're interested in staying up to date with the latest Black and Science content, feel free to follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore BIS and on Instagram at Black and Science, where I'll be posting regular updates on the release of new episodes every other Monday. Lastly, if you're interested in participating as a guest on the show, just send me an email at bisthepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for all of your love and support, and I'll talk to you guys in the next one.
Thank you.